What's up, everybody? This is Chris Bates with the At Last Podcast, as brought to you by the Advantage Podcast Network. I am here with Adam Katie and a new voice for you all to hear that we are going to introduce in a second. And then, of course, our guest for today. I'm going to throw it over to Adam and let Adam introduce our new voice, our guest host for today, as well as the guest who we will be talking to today. Well, we are very thankful, grateful, blessed to have Diana Hedgepeth with us today, who is at last's nonprofit director of social media. Yes. yes. Hello, hello. Yes, welcome, Diana. She is sitting in with us today. We'll be contributing in our conversation with our guest today, who is Dr. Stuart Schenker. He is a psychologist and researcher. He holds degrees from the University of Toronto and Oxford University. He is a leading expert on the theory of self-regulation, which is the topic of our discussion today. Have I ever mentioned our string of distinguished guests? Yeah, often. Often. <laughs> Diana and Chris, please help me welcome Dr. Schenker. Welcome, Dr. Schenker, or Dr. Stewart, or Stewart. <laughs> All three nice of you. Thank you, Dion. Yes. So, Chris, if you'll give us a bit of an introduction about our nonprofit and its inception for Dr. Shanker's context, and then we'll roll into race-related stressors and self-regulation. Oh, boy. Okay. I try to make this more succinct each time I say it, but essentially, at last was created Dr. Shanker, really in an effort. I'm sure there's some phenomenon happening here because as we've been digesting some of your research and trying to apply the practices that have come from the research of self-reg, maybe we'll be referring to this stuff ad nauseum. But in essence, and in, probably in an effort to regulate ourselves back in 2020, when there was just the perfect storm of all of the social issues that had come to a head at that time, right? Whether it was George Floyd or other forms of racism that made news or other sorts of injustices and other isms and all of those things, not to mention COVID, all of these things kind of got to a point where for Adam and I, I think, you know, we, 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 we we're, we're good buddies, we're friends, we're colleagues and all those things. So it really started by us just checking in with each other. And as a form of regulating ourselves, we started to have more frequent conversations about the things that were going on, which, which took a lot of vulnerability, right? Even for close friends like he and I, to be able to be honest about how we're feeling about things and what we think about things and our convictions and our beliefs, et cetera. Long story short, that led us to finding the courage to say, you know what? The conversations that we're having among one another is good enough to like, let's invite other people into this because we want to see how we can actually impact some of these topics and issues that we're talking about in our actual profession and in our setting of sports medicine. So, 
you know, this is the, this was the era of podcasts booming and things like that. So we said, man, maybe we should start a podcast and just record our conversations and okay, we'll start inviting guests. And, you know, that, that became a thing. And we started having great ideas of different guests to invite and how the intersectionality of different guests actually inform sports medicine, moving away from talking about anatomy and physiology solely, right? Talk, moving away from talking just about the newest trends in surgical procedures or the newest trends in rehabbing an ACL or, you know, you know, there's a, and those things are good, right? We acknowledge the benefits of those things, but the, the thing that was missing in our space of practice, well, there's a lot of things, but one of the biggest ones that we talked, we realized was addressing social issues and how those social issues impact our profession from the professional to those that we serve athletes active, active populations, et cetera. So there's a, there's a disparity, right? There's, there's a, there's ethnic disparities that we see in our profession as far as specifically black and other people of color serving in these spaces. But we see the disparity comes because we see a lot of participants like athletes who far exceed the amount of, of representation that are there to serve and care for them, whether it's athletic trainers, sports medicine doctors, mental health professionals, all across the gamut. So we wanted to just start talking about those things. And that led us to forming a nonprofit because we realized as we were talking about these things, there were actual action items that came up. And here we are, long story short, here we are, having Dr. Stuart Shanker on our episode to talk to us about self-reg. And we're going to see if we can pull off how the integration of self-reg, which I think is going to be a fairly easy task to do because it's so prevalent, it's so relevant and all of those things, how it intersects with just not just our lives as humans, but also in, in our practice and profession. I thought you said you got more succinct when every time you do this. It's yeah. pretty good though. So, so, thank you. Thank you. Adam's dysregulating me right now. <laughs> so Dr. Shaker, to Bridget, just briefly more in Los Angeles, there are roughly 90 high schools. There's, there's actually more, but just 90 in LA Unified School District that do not have any practice sports medicine professionals, although they have, you know, three, 400 student athletes that are injured, concussed, having mental health issues, addiction, like you name it. And this is high need communities, you know, underserved, great uh, populations of people of color, large numbers of people of color, persons of color. And so I strongly feel that, and Deanna and I were dissecting this a bit right before you got on, that most children are not taught how to recognize stressors, how to recognize whether they're regulated or dysregulated, and then tools to then regulate themselves. And I, I see it in, you know, healthcare professionals that I work with all the time and patients that I see all the time that most individuals are not very in tune with their regulation. Yeah. And so we wanted to just discuss with you and dissect the topic today of how we can bring this to athletes from underserved communities, how we can bring that to healthcare providers caring for these athletes, how we can all benefit from self-regulation. Well, I should probably uh, just tell you guys that when we got your invite, we went online to look at your website and a whole bunch of us uh, were listening to your podcast and uh, we love what you're doing for many reasons. Um, wow. One of them, wow. 
Well, a lot of us are athletes. We are fundamentally committed to the same goals as you guys. Uh, but also, uh, you know, just this morning and this afternoon, I've got to do some stuff on the anxiety epidemic. And I guess you know that we're seeing numbers that we've never seen before. In fact, it's doubled since the pandemic. And the numbers are so big. You can't pot. What are you going to do? You're going to you're going to medicate everybody. You're going to send everybody to therapy. So what we wanted was a universal approach, something that's going to benefit everybody. And for almost everybody at my organization, the number one go to is sports. Um, that's how it's like. I'm looking at Adam. Uh, Adam is clearly a runner. Uh, or former. <laughs> Chris, Chris looks like a football player. Deanna, you look like a ballerina. I'll take it. Okay. Uh, the challenge that we've got today with you three is self-reg is based on a revolution that's going on right now in neuroscience and the study of the brain. Uh, we've discovered stuff over the last 20 years that has really overturned things that we've taken for granted for hundreds of years, things that we take for granted when we're working with kids or with patients, things that are harming them. So our concern here is very closely aligned with, with Adams. What we want is not simply, we don't just want to see kids excel. And I have a son who is a, a great hockey player, but constantly getting hurt. And so what we want is for this to be healthy. And when we say healthy, we mean physically and mentally. And I am astonished by the mental health problems that I am seeing. Both my kids are athletes, and I am astonished by the mental health problems that we're seeing in young athletes today so something has to be done and you guys are on the right track i love it yes. yeah at last is proud to announce that we have teamed up with rain cross high performance and thorn to support athletes from underserved communities if you purchase supplements through the rain cross high performance dispensary via thorn you can receive a 35 percent discount on products purchased not only does rain cross offer the highest discount possible to their performers but 100% of the profits from their dispensary will go to initiatives supporting athletes from underserved communities via Atlas. If you're looking for high quality products from omega-3s to vitamin D, go to www.thorn.com forward slash U forward slash HP to receive 35% and support our cause. So one thing you mentioned about your son in particular is he is experiencing one of the domains of stress that you yeah. so nicely articulate in your work. And as healthcare providers, Chris alluded to this, we're stuck in the lane of treating the yeah. biological issue yeah. within the patient and not necessarily treating from a biopsychosocial model. So Good. I think this is a perfect segue to you maybe explaining to us the five domains of stress. Uh, okay, so now, Adam, how much how much science am I allowed to do today? Oh, man. All Geek out. <laughs> yes. Lay it on. <laughs> yeah. Yes, lay it on us, man. Okay, so 
we ran a, a, a research clinic where we treated kids on the spectrum. And uh, one half of it was a therapy side and the other half was a neuroscience. So we got to look at their brains while we were doing therapy and see the effects of the therapy on parts of the brain pretty deep down. Let me, let me add uh, autism spectrum just for our listeners. Sorry, autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, what we saw with every single kid that passed through our clinic, and now uh, we're a national organization in education, and what we see in every single kid who's having problems is that they've got way too much stress in their lives. Now, stress is a real tricky concept. And basically, the scientific definition of stress is anything that requires the brain to burn energy in order to stay in balance, in order to stay in that, what we call homeostasis. And the problem with stress, let me add one more thing, and then Chris, you can say whatever you want to say. And the problem with stress is it's what we call a dynamic concept. And what that means is no two kids have the same reaction to, say, a stimulus. Um, Stress depends on what's going on inside the kid, uh, their current state of energy and tension. And it also depends on their sensory system. So one in the same stress can actually be terrific for one kid and really brutal for another. And all kinds of things happen when stress is excessive. So, okay, so we thought, okay, uh, we're looking at these kids and what we realized is two things. One of them is what was a stress for one kid wasn't for another, I mean, a, a big stress. So that was a problem. We had to figure out what stresses are. And the other one was the little buggers change on you all the time. So what was a stress last week isn't today or vice versa. Right. So we, we began building up what's called a stress inventory. And uh, we worked with scientists around the world. What are the most common stresses that children and teens and young adults are dealing with? And we ended up with six about 660 different stresses. And some of them are really surprising. Um, like some of them are in the news now. So we know that blue light is a stress. Uh, We know that sugary drinks are a stress. They're a physiological stress. Absolutely. So we couldn't exactly say to, you know, the parents and teachers that we're working with, well, here's a list of 660. (laughs) That's a lot. Figure out which one one works for your kid. So what we did was uh, in psychology, it's called a factor analysis. We started to group them together. And we ended up with five groups, five basic domains of stress. And that's what Adam was referring to. And the five domains are, first of all, physical. So physical stress, you guys are are, are dealing with this in a big way in the US right now, especially in the Southwest. Heat is a big physical stress. Yep. And in order for that, in order for the body to maintain an internal temperature of 98.6, you've got to trigger all kinds of homeostatic systems to cool off uh, the body and most importantly, the brain. The brain doesn't like it more than 98.6. So you're using up, just going outside, you're using up 
an awful lot of energy because of the stress of heat. And unfortunately, you need that energy for other stuff too. Uh, You need it, for example, to go to school to learn. Learning is a stress. So if if you've used it all up on, you know, just trying to deal with 100 degree weather, you haven't got much left over to, to concentrate. So when we look at physical stresses, we're looking at things like temperature, light, noise. And one of the big discoveries that we made was that kids from low-income areas, so um, this is a general truth across the U.S., have way more physical stresses Mm, than kids. Yeah. So there's more noise. There's more air pollution. So Mm -hmm. right off off the bat, they're behind the ball. Right off the bat, they're using up so much of their energy on physical stresses that there's not much left over for when they go to school. The tank, the the fuel tank, the fuel tank is empty. One of the things that uh, Adam hinted at at the top was, you know, we do self-regulation, which is basically how do we fill up the tank? And what we found, and this is the key to all the work we do, I can take a kit and we do an awful lot of work in uh, similar kinds of areas up here in Canada, uh, First Nations, for example. And what we find is that if we can fill up a kid's tank, if we can figure out what are the stresses, why is this particular kid running on empty, what happens is we see a different kid, we see a new kid. And in we've, what we've learned, and this is the essence of self-reg is, so I've seen, I don't know how many maybe 100,000 kids over the course of my career. I've never seen a bad kid, ever. Agreed. There is love no such, that. There is no, such, no such a thing. It's great. Okay, so we look first. The first domain is physical. Now, the next domain is emotional. And, you know, I mean, fear, anger, uh, these are really expensive. They use up an uh, they're, they're stresses. So they're using up an awful lot of glucose and a lot of the kids energy next one is next one is social that's easy uh you know go to school go online go on social media these are these are brutal today the last two are kind of tricky one is cognitive and uh, we don't have time for me to explain really what a cognitive stress is but the simplest answer is math math is a cognitive stress yep that means is When you watch a kid doing math, what you'll see is their whole body is tense. They're almost like a runner in the blocks. We talk about concentration as a whole body phenomenon. So when you're you're trying to solve this, your heart's beating faster, your muscles are tense, it's requiring a lot of energy. Now, if a kid comes into that situation to deal with the cognitive stress of math, and they're already on empty, or let's take a little bit, a more subtle answer. Maybe the kid has a deficit in what's called mathematical cognition, how the brain processes uh, numbers. Okay, any kid can become a runner. Any kid, if you do it well, if you make it fun, if you pace it, 
if you, you know, not every kid is going to be gifted. Not every kid's got those slow twitch muscles. But if we do it within the kid's comfort zone, what's going to happen is that kid's going to love to run. That kid's going to experience the joy of running. Yep. And the same is true of math. So I don't care what the, what the deficits might be. What I care about is recognizing that this kid's not being a, he's not being oppositional in math class. He's being overstressed. And so what I got to do is I got to lower the stress for him. Absolutely. So that, and then what, and you can take any kid and you can make any kid an athlete. You can make any kid a runner. And this is big. And the last stress is the stress of being a good kid. Dr. Uh, Shaker, yeah. can, I, can we try something? Sure. Can I take a crack at the pro-social domain and you tell me if I'm correct? Yes. Because I'm going to use an analogy for our listeners that are healthcare providers. Yeah, go for it, Adam. So as healthcare providers, we can deal with strong emotions from other individuals. And often that can look like an ankle sprain. But if an athlete is not appropriately regulated, we will sometimes label those athletes as difficult or yeah. as pain out of proportion, yeah. which, yeah. yes. So I cringe when I hear healthcare providers say pain out of proportion because <laughs> <laughs> that is this person's experience and yeah. you, because you're not comfortable with how they're experiencing it, but maybe you're as a healthcare provider, you're not as regulated as you should be. We sometimes label athletes as being overdramatic or pain out of proportion, like all of these things. Guilty. Yeah. And so strong emotions from people you are treating, I think, falls under the pro-social domain. Yeah, that's uh, a perfect example. And I can't help it, but bounce back with a little bit of science. Yeah, I love it. it. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that we do is we the we talk about levels of the brain. There's the, this part of the brain, the surface, and then right underneath that, there's the subcortex, which is the limbic system. And then at the bottom, right down here, is the midbrain and brainstem. And one of the big discoveries that was made in 98 is that when a kid has a strong emotion, let's say anger or fear, it also triggers, and Adam can explain this, it triggers nociception. Absolutely. And so what that means is that this kid is dealing not just with fear, we'll say, but also with pain. And it's coming from, from the very deepest level of the brain. Now, there are two points that have to be made here. First of all, this pain is hugely expensive, uses up a lot of glucose. And so this kid who's making us nuts for whatever reason, or we think, we think, oh, well, you know, this, this kid's not trying hard enough. That's, that's, the, that's the big one. What's really going on is for whatever reason. It could be something that the kid was born with. It could be something about the kid's home life. It could be something about the kid's neighborhood. This kid is constantly experiencing fear and pain, anger and pain. So the behavior, so what you do is you reframe the behavior and you say to yourself, holy shit, 
this poor kid, it's not that he's not working hard enough. He's working way too hard. Yes. And I got and I got to figure out why. Yes. Now, can I do one last bit of, can I do a little bit more science? Please. Yeah. Okay. So we made a big discovery in sports medicine about, I don't know, 15 years ago. And that was, um, they were looking at really successful athletes. And what they discovered is that the secret to successful athletics is not willpower. It's not grit. What it is, is recovery. The great athletes recover so much faster. So for us, that posed a really interesting, and by the way, we, we, we have been working with sports medicine up here, and that posed a really interesting question. What does that mean? So you say, well, you know, he, he recovers faster. I can tell you right now, I've been a runner my whole life. When I was young, I could go for a long run and I was ready to go the next day. Now I'm close to 70. I go for a long, well, I go for a long shuffle. <laughs> and, and that'll knock me out for about four days. So recovery is not okay. So, but what we wanted to know was when we're working with, with kids or when we're working with teens, what exactly do we mean when we talk about recovery? What is this? So self-reg is five steps. And the five steps are the first step is called reframing. So what we want to distinguish between is misbehavior and stress behavior. What we find is if a kid is presenting all kinds of problems, whatever they might be, emotional, behavioral, it's going to be a stress behavior. Too much stress, not enough recovery. Mm -hmm. So step two, we're going to figure out what the stresses are, hidden, whatever. Uh, Step three, we're going to reduce those stresses. Uh, Step four, we need that kid to get calm. And when we talk about calm, we mean calm in the brain. We want the brain to calm down uh, as well as the body. And then step five, they can go through restoration. Restoration refers to a physiological process where cells get repaired, uh, energy gets restored. It's called a parasympathetic function. Recovery. Right? Yeah, recovery. Now, the thing is, okay, so we got this. So, okay, we made this big discovery that the the great athletes, successful athletes recover faster. Our question was why? What's really going on here? And so here's what we learned. At the bottom of the brain, it's called the midbrain. There- there's this little tiny system. It's called the periaqueductal gray. And one of the, and right beside it, there's another one again in the midbrain called the ventral tegmental area. And it doesn't matter what these are called. The point is they produce dopamine. When, when they are triggered, they produce this neurochemical that goes right up and it goes up into the middle of the brain. It goes all the way up to the front part of the brain. Dopamine is the magic elixir of life. So what does dopamine do? Well, one of the things it does is it gives us energy. Another thing that it does is it gives us motivation. If I've got an athlete that is poorly motivated or goes through periods of poor motivation, 
I don't want to respond with saying this kid or this young person needs more grit. In fact, that'll make things worse. If you want to read a really great book on this, read Andre Agassi's autobiography, Open. So Agassi relied on grit, and that didn't work very well. So then he switched to drugs, hard drugs, uh, and paid an enormous price, an enormous physical price. Uh, and when I was a ball player, so I played with a lot of black kids from uh, New York City, and they were relying on drugs and they were playing hours that the human body can't play. And they were keeping themselves going on hard drugs. And this has become a major issue, obviously, in today's successful athletes, these athletes that have to take a mental health break. Now, here's the key. Dopamine gives you energy. Dopamine gives you motivation. Dopamine inhibits pain. Yep. What we wanted to know was, okay, so we know that dopamine is really important for the athletes, their positive mood, their energy, taking on the challenge. What we wanted to know was what interferes with dopamine? What inhibits dopamine? And there's a couple of things that do it. The big one is too much stress. Okay, so excessive stress blocks dopamine neurons at the base of the brain. Yep. And now we go back to, to Adam's original question, you know, the five domains. So if I've got, say, the stress of heat, my motivation is going to go to hell because I'm not getting enough dopamine. Okay, now... Now, the general point here is, and I'll, I'll get to the positive side in one sec. The general point is we talk about something called homeostatic imbalance. You guys are going to have to explain that to your listeners at a later time. <laughs> they know. So, we understand homeostasis. They should know. Yeah. If they don't know, then they need then to get the credential Chris, revoked. So, Chris, just go over it again for them. Okay. Okay, so there's all kinds of different kinds of homeostatic imbalance. There's energy, that's a big one. There's fatigue, sleep, water, food, you know, I mean, on and on. So we've got we've got these homeostatic systems. If they're imbalanced at the bottom of the brain, it blocks dopamine. And so it's natural for athletes to go into homeostatic imbalance. That's the nature of the that's the nature of the beast. So what matters is when you've got and you know you worked out, you've done a really hard workout or you've gone for a really tough run whatever, you've done, you know, you've done your wind sprints. So now what we've got to do is we've got to restore homeostatic balance. We've got to restore dopamine Otherwise, what's going to happen is the next day, I'm not going to have that, that, that great feeling about, you know, I can't wait to work out today or hit the courts. Uh, instead, I'm going to rely on grit. So we don't want that. We want it to be a natural, healthy activity. So that for us as, as you know, neuroscientists, what we wanted to know is what restores dopamine. 
because I don't want to go down the route that Adam just mentioned a second ago. I don't want to go down the route of taking drugs or relying on dopamine fixes that I can get from playing, you know, Call of Duty. I want what are the natural ways of restoring dopamine? Okay, so we know there's a whole bunch of them, right? So we know hygiene, healthy sleep habits, healthy eating, all of these restore dopamine. But the number one source of dopamine in the human brain is another human. It's called social engagement. So when we are touched, and this is, you know, you know, I'm going to have a tough day today. It's too much. So my wife will will be a very good wife and she will rub my shoulders for a bit. And that will give me all kinds of dopamine um, as well as love. Skin hunger. Skin. Who said that, Chris? Oh, Adam, no, that's Adam. Gonna be, Adam is Adam's the he's the guy. That's, <laughs> he's that's the gold exactly, star student. Yep. That's exactly right, Adam. Now yeah. I'll tell you, Adam, I'll tell you something you probably don't know. This is a recent recent discovery. Okay. I love it. So in 19, in 2019, we discovered that there are a special set of neurons. In again, in the midbrain, in a tiny little place called the dorsal rafe nucleus, and they are social dopamine neurons. They are triggered when we're alone, when we're lonely. They move us, they propel us to get back into human contact. And so, you know, you think about, um, you know, why are athletes always touching each other, you know, huddles, touch on the butt, you know, so we need that physical contact. And for parents, a very recent discovery is that the voice is also a form of touch. Sound waves, yeah, I know it's cool. eh? Sound waves caress the eardrum, triggering the release of oxytocin. Makes perfect sense. Yep, makes perfect wow. sense. But it has to be it has to be soothing voice, not 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 okay. a dysregulating voice. Okay, so so what we want to do is, uh, and this has been one of the big problems that Chris mentioned at the outset. This has been one of the problems with with the pandemic. Kids basically in isolation, not getting that those hugs or whatever from other kids, but also when a kid gets overstressed, there is a danger that they shrink into themselves and their number one need is their parent. Their number one need is, I don't care what their age, you know, so I mentioned, you know, I got a 20 year old now and when he gets overstressed, he needs a hug Yep, because he's functioning at the level of an infant. Uh, He doesn't need a lecture. So what oxytocin does is really, really cool. Oxytocin turns off the stress response. Okay, so that's another part of the, uh, that's in the limbic system. Uh, It turns off the set, the neurons that produce stress hormones. It turns off pain. It triggers natural opioids. So what we're trying to do in self-reg is we want the kid to figure out what are the natural ways that I can give myself a shot of oxytocin and endogenous opioids. If I can do that, 
what's going to happen is I'm going to restore. I'm not going to seek what are called maladaptive ways of self-regulating. What that means is a caffeine drink is a maladaptive way of keeping yourself going. Uh, and so what you really need to do is, you know, if you're getting those signs that you're running on empty, sit down. You know, so would I? Yes. <laughs> okay. So I meditate or I'll go for a walk. So good. Springbok Analytics is proud to support Atlas and their mission to improve equity across sports medicine. Springbok's all-powered technology transforms MRI images into 3D digital twins of your patient, giving you precise, objective data to inform your rehab and training programs. Go to springboktech.com to get your analysis today and mention Atlas for a 20% discount. A, a huge piece that you skimmed upon in terms of being able to regulate yourself is recognizing the yeah. dysregulation. And I, I think we need to touch upon that. But I want to I want to I want to rewind and and yeah. really hammer home the point of reframing the behavior. And I, I want to use an epidemiological study to oh. frame this for us. So a group in Atlanta looked at 714 black students in, in Atlanta, and they were 10 to 12 years of age. And they found that increases in these individuals' lives of discrimination were associated with conduct problems. Okay, And for listeners, I'm air quoting conduct because I think it's very important that we move away from terms of like, misbehavior yep. and conduct issues, especially when if whatever percentage of these individuals are having quote unquote conduct problems because of discrimination that has occurred in their life, we need to, as healthcare providers, have more empathy for this situation, recognize that this is a possibility of their misbehavior, what what may be driving it. And so your tool of reframing behavior is like, when I first read this years ago, mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I, Adam, I think that's exactly right. So what we work with physicians, we say to them, okay, so you know, you've got a kid come in and they've got a rash on their face and they, they've got a temperature and there's some spots. Are you going to punish them? You're going to lecture them? So, okay, so you're going to figure out, um, you know, you'll go to your, you know, you'll go to your medical textbooks and, and how do all these fit together? What's the symptomology telling me about a differential diagnosis? Try to so get to the root cause. Yeah. And that's yeah. what we do with kids. So if I've got a kid that uh, is having behavior issues, I start asking a whole bunch of questions. And the easiest way we teach this to parents or teachers is you ask two to begin with. Why? And why oh, now? Wow. Okay, so what we find is, oh my goodness, this kid, uh, this kid only acts this way when the classroom gets really noisy. Or this kid only acts this way when somebody invades his body space or, you know, we just you go on and on. When the coach screams and yells at him. When the, exactly. There's that wonderful scene in that movie with Sandra Bullock. Remember, she goes up to the 
Blindside, the blindside? Yeah, blindside. Yeah, yeah. And she tells the coach, he doesn't respond to yelling, right? Uh, and instead, what she does is uh, she explains. And so what we do with the kids that we work with, and this was one of the, this is one of our big breakthroughs. So we were working, like Adam mentioned, with young kids on the spectrum. And what we wanted to know was how old can they start to reframe? And it turns out they can do their own behavior at the age of three. They just need to be told. Nice. So, so what we teach the kids, what we're teaching at any age is what are the signs of when I'm running on empty? What are the signs when uh, I want to restore before I have the meltdown, before and I never, ever have had to try to persuade a kid to learn this because no kid wants to lose control. No kid wants to feel like this. It feels crappy. But mm-hmm. Adam put his finger on a huge issue. Okay. Can I just ask the question and then I'll let you continue? Yep. Um, so are we seeing greater obesity? Are we seeing greater depression? Are we seeing greater anxiety in our society? Or do we have, is it because we're having more stress or is it because we don't have the right self-regulating behaviors, more yes. stress or lack of regulation? Yes. yes. Does, it, does it have to be an either or? Yes. Both. yes. <laughs> Both. Nope. It does not. Okay. No. So let's just, uh, he's asked, uh, uh, I mean, that's not fair. You can't do three biggies. You can't do obesity, <laughs> depression, and anxiety. Okay. You, you, you choose your, well, your I'll, just, uh, I'll do obesity first and then. Because that's a big problem for you guys in the U.S. Um, No pun intended. Huge. Well, okay. So when we talk about self-regulation, okay, so remember I said self-regulation refers to how we manage stress. Babies self-regulate. Babies come into the world self-regulating. So how do they self-regulate? Well, when the stress is too much, they fall asleep. Sucking. Yep. That's a good one, Chris. That's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris is under stress right now, so I don't know what he's chewing, but <laughs> but that's a good self-regulating behavior. Right. Okay. <laughs> so the founders of this science, it was American as it happens, the beginning of the 20th century, what he showed was the body has all kinds of innate self-regulating mechanisms. And we have, okay, so the self-regulating mechanism is a mechanism designed by nature to maintain homeostasis. That's all it is. Man, Um, and we, I just want to posit, there are so many of these mechanisms in place for the student athletes that we serve, especially those athletes of color. That's good. One primary one that comes to, to mind, and then I'll let you keep going, Doc, is gaze aversion. Yeah, that's right, great. Right. great. Great, great, Gaze great. Gaze aversion is a huge great. coping mechanism to keep people from losing their temper or keep them from whatever, right? And But then we get in their face about turning their gaze away. Okay, Chris, why do they gaze? <laughs> that's a great one. Why do they gaze avert? My, well, Reduces uh, oh, some of the sympathetic tone? Yeah, some of the why? stress that they're getting. Why? Yeah, exactly. Why? Avoid the problem. Okay, so now, remember, I'm a neuroscientist, right? There's a ton of energy 
coming out of the fovea, coming out of the eyes. And when you're angry and your pupils dilate, the energy coming off is way more. And it's coming out through your voice and it's coming out through your facial expression. So they're gaze averting, like Diana just said a second ago. I don't know if you heard what she said. So what they're doing is they are reducing the stress. So it's a natural self-regulating behavior. Great example. We saw it over and over in the kids with autism. There was nothing broken. They were overstressed and they were gaze averting to try to reduce the stress of social interaction. Okay. So we have lots of these natural innate self-regulating mechanisms and we have one around food. Okay, so there's a system deep inside the brain called the seeking system. And when we, when our glucose drops, we have like a little uh, measurement tool inside the brain. That's like a toilet float, you know, those ball cocks. Mm-hmm. And when the glucose goes that's down, analogy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it triggers eating. Okay. And when the, when it goes back up, it stops eating. So we have these two chemicals, leptin and ghrelin. So when the ghrelin. What's that mechanism called again? Uh, seeking mechanism? Seeking with capital letters, Chris. Okay. Uh, discovered by Yak Panksep. So we get, um, so when the ball cock goes down, it triggers ghrelin, which get, makes us eat. And when the ball cock goes back up, it triggers leptin and that makes us stop. And I'm and for sure those, of- for those listeners who don't know what we're talking about, you have to lift the back part of your toilet up. <laughs> I, get, I bet there's a few, right? There's a few out there that are like, what are they talking about? If you have to lift up the top part of the commode and you'll see what he's talking about. <laughs> I, I told you, you guys had to explain. Okay, now, so somebody that is obese, that mechanism has broken down. So they're not. Wow. Yep. So why aren't they? Why are they not paying attention to the leptin? telling them to stop eating. Well, we know that part of the answer here is that the food industry are buggers and they figured out through the bliss point how they can trick the system to override. Okay, so we know this and that end of overeating is a great book on that. But here's the key. Now think about black communities where the obesity rates are very high. When stress is very high. Which is often. <laughs> okay, now it's going to do two things to the brain. The one thing it's going to do is it's going to, you're going to be looking for opioids and, and that's where the food industry has excelled, giving you that sudden burst of opioids that you get from sugar, fat, and salt. Doesn't last long. It's it's very maladaptive because it makes you, it makes you obese. But there's a second point. Excessive stress causes something called dysteroception. Adam's saying, hmm, he's already figured it out. What happens is it shuts down self-awareness. Spell that word for us, D-Y-S. D-Y-S-T-E-R-O-C-E-P-T-I-O-N, dystroception. So good. Okay. So, and that's a survival mechanism. It was a survival mechanism that when we were in a time of famine or whatever, nature didn't want us aware of our internal sensations. 
So the stress of the famine shuts down the feeling, this is the hard part, shuts down the feeling that leptin produces. Leptin produces that feeling, an uncomfortable feeling. Think about Thanksgiving after your dinner and you're coming open your, it doesn't feel good. Satiety or lack of satiety. So it feels gross though, right? So when somebody's obese, it's not that they lack willpower. Willpower has absolutely nothing to do with this. In fact, if I tell them that it's willpower, I'm making everything worse, making it seem like you're weak. And that's yeah, why it is. That's dangerous. Yes. What it is, is too much stress in their lives. And the stress, and we went through why their stress is so high, the stress is shutting down self-awareness. I don't, I'm not ignoring my leptin. I don't feel it. I don't feel those sensations that I feel after Thanksgiving. I don't feel those sensations that I feel. That's what distraception means. It means that the brain is blocking the sensations that tell me to stop eating. I don't hear that voice. And so then what the food industry did was they capitalized on this. So then what they did was these poor people are already under, under way too much stress. Let's see if we can kill them through but so I can make a buck. Now, there's been some real interesting stuff that's come out just this past two weeks. It turns out that the obesity is not the cause of the health problem that we thought. It's the stress. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the health, the obesity is putting enormous stress on various organs. So it becomes, it becomes like depression. The thing about depression, the reason why Adam grouped them together is depression, it switches from external stress to internal. We start creating our own stress, and that's what keeps right. the cycle going. Secondary. Yeah, exactly. So with obesity, the same thing happens. Wow. The uh, leptin production, it, it's a complicated story, and I've explained it somewhere. But the point is, if I want to help this person, my focus is going to be, why are you overstressed? Hmm. What can we do about this? Root so, cause medicine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Adam. That's exactly right. Excuse. And so, so what we do is, so we, we, we run special clinics for uh, people with obesity. And what we're working on with them is, okay, we need these systems to come back online. And it's going to be the same with anxiety. It's going to be different systems, but I can tell you the same sort of a story. If I've seen a doubling of diagnoses, so JAMA came out a couple of weeks ago and said it's doubled since the pandemic. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so what I what I know is it's being caused by excessive stress, maladaptive self-regulation, and the absence of those things that produce oxytocin. Because oxytocin turns off the stress. Oxytocin reawakens interoception, reawakens. So I become aware of those signals that my, that, so the signals, I want to hear them. I want to hear when my brain is telling me you're thirsty. I want to hear when my brain is telling me you are overstressed. You need to take a break. If I'm an athlete, I want to know when it's telling me, you know what? Now would be a good time to go for a swim. Now would be a good time to, to, to go meditate, to just chill with friends. 
and go another step with the athletic trainer, the practitioner. And one of the things, Chris, that's always struck me, because when I was uh, when I played ball, after every after every single uh, workout, we had a we had an onsite trainer. And I think about that, right? Like the massage, you know, I, I only thought of it in terms of, well, you know, he's loosening up my muscles. Now he was giving me a shot of oxytocin. I didn't have a wife yet. I was just Multi- multifactorial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Adam, that's exactly our model that everything is multifactorial. And so we start to break it apart. MedBridge provides evidence-based courses, unlimited CEUs, home exercise programs featuring 6,000 plus exercises and more. Use promo code THEADVANTAGE, that's T-H-E-A-T-V-A-N-T-A-G-E to get an annual MedBridge subscription. So what about, we, we talk about obviously as athletic trainers, what about that support system and that, you know, we may not always be physically touching our athletes with massage or kind of that pre-post care, but what about just like words of encouragement? Could that also benefit the athlete to, you know, we talked about, what was it? You said words can also translate as physical touch. Could that? You, you answered your own question. That's my <laughs> yeah. favorite kind of question. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so what we thought we were doing was, you know, we're not exhorting them. We're not, you know, pushing them, you know, you can do it, you can do it. But what we're actually doing is, look, this kid, there's a technical term for it. It's called an interbrain. An interbrain is a connection between your brain and the kids. It's a wireless connection, Bluetooth connection, limbic to And so this kid needs an interbrain in his life. And maybe the kid doesn't have one. Mm -hmm. Particularly the populations and demographics. Particularly the population. Exactly. And so like it or not, you are way more than a coach. You are an interbrain. (laughs) And so what you're doing through Deanna, through that voice that you just described, you're not just, you're not just soothing. You are providing that kid with maybe the first time in his life that he's felt safe and secure. And when they feel safe and secure, guess what? Restoration takes off. Parasympathetic restoration takes off. And Stuart, that's only if that interbrain is regulated too, right? Because if it's not, then that gets passed on to the other person. Is that that accurate? 100%. And this is a big problem that we have with, with teachers. And uh, I once, we used to do this exercise where we'd film, we'd videotape teachers. And so we had this one guy and he was doing all our courses and uh, they videotaped him. And he went to his facilitator and he said he wanted to quit teaching after he saw the videotape um, because self-rate wasn't working. (laughs) So, so anyways, you know, uh, she sent me the video and I'm looking at him and he's, He's face to face with the kid. He's in the kid's face and his hands are, are, are clenched like his fist. And he's saying to the kid, you need to self-regulate. You. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. So, so uh, one of the things that we stress, and it's clearly the message you guys got to get out, is self-reg starts with self. So whoever is the coach, whoever is the trainer, you have to be in that calm uh, space yourself. Because 
when a kid is overstressed, all they pick up are your nonverbal signals. All they pick up is what's coming from your own limbic system. If your limbic system is aggravated or irritated with the kid, that's what they hear. Right. So you can't bullshit your way through this. You cannot. You cannot. And you right. can't memorize a script. Right. And so what happens is, and we've seen this and shown this over and over. This, you know, uh, there's a great, I have a previous book called Self Reg, and there's a wonderful story in it about a mom who was having a two hour fight with her 13 year old every single night. And so uh, the point of the story was, we said to her, the next time this happens with your kid, we want you to go out in the hall, take some deep breaths, calm yourself down. And when you feel calm, go back in and don't say a damn thing. If you have to say something, just say, I love you, darling. So so she, the kid really pissed her off, and I won't tell you why. And uh, she goes out in the hall, and she said, okay, the doctor said I'm not allowed to say anything. So she goes back in, and the kid's sitting on her bed. One of the things that shuts down when a kid gets really agitated is their ability to talk. When a kid is, is really agitated, they can't actually process what you're saying. In that kid that we started off talking about, the kid who's having the meltdown, uh, they don't, they have no idea what you're saying. They're certainly not going to, this is not the time to teach them the error of their ways. We have to bring that brain back into homeostasis. So we wanted to establish physical contact between mom and the kid, but you can't ask the kid, you can't say to the kid, would you like a back massage? Because the kid can't answer a question. Try doing it with your own kids when they're really agitated. It doesn't work. The nonverbal system stays online. So you say to the kid, would you like me to, uh, in the story that Adam just mentioned, the kid liked to be scratched. Uh, And you have to figure out what kind of touch kids like. So she says to her daughter, would you like me to scratch your arm? Raise your finger if you do. But there's a better way. And that is you put your finger inside the kid's hand. And you just say to the kid, if you want me to scratch you, just squeeze my finger. Mm, that's a great strategy. It's great because you get the physical contact yeah. and the communication. So the yeah. kid squeezes, she starts to scratch the child on her, and you do it up here or here because it's non-threatening. So the kid, within 15 minutes, the kid's ready to go to sleep. And these were fights that were going on for Brilliant. two hours. So as the mom's about to leave, uh, she turns off the light as she's about to leave. The kid suddenly says, I love you, mommy. Now, that's really important because what's happened is the regression, the child's regress, and, th- and she's 13, but it can be a, my 20-year-old's the same. They regress to the level of an infant. The needs are the same. Your athletes, you can be working with like that guy in the movie, I forgot the name again, with Sandra Bullock. You know, he's a big guy, but he's still, when he's having, when he's in that crisis, like he goes to his, his mother's house, you know, he's, he's operating at the level of a three-year-old. And what they need is to have that memory. And I'll come back to this in one second. To have that memory of security of infancy triggered, kindled, reminded. Mm-hmm. Now, what if I've got it? And then the next day in the story, the kid comes down and everything's great. Now, what if I've got a kid, and Chris hinted at this a second ago, who hasn't had that experience, who hasn't, who's never had that security. 
okay, I'm going to give it to you because we're going to build it. Exactly, Adam. It's called reconsolidating the memory. So now what's going to happen is starting from today, that kid's going to come to me when the feelings are overwhelming. So what I don't want to do is I come back to what Deanna said a second ago. So now if that kid's come to me, I don't want to blow it. I don't want to start to lecture him. You know, you need, you need to, you know, instead what he's telling me through or she's telling me through their behavior is, you know, I need an interbrain. I need to feel safe and secure. And I can do this. And what we've learned is that even the people that were most opposed to this, when we come into a school, for example, once they taste it, I don't have to persuade anybody. I don't have to persuade. So you got a bunch of people that are right right now in the U.S. You got a significant percentage of your population that's in red brain. Mm. I'm not going to bring them out of red brain by telling them how irrational they're being. So I got to get them out of red brain, and the country's got to get out of red brain. Let's just generalize one step further. You're not just doing sports medicine, okay? So we went through your podcasts. This is a message for your country. This is a message it's a for revolution. Canada. Yes. Revolution. Everybody's got to be watching this. Everybody's hearing. I don't care who the kid is. I don't care if it's an athlete, if it's a violinist, if it's a kid who's trying to learn how to read. They all need this. The country needs this. So, guys, you got your work ahead. Yes. Well, let me let me make a really strong statement about this book that you wrote, Self-Reg, Help Your Child. And you, in parentheses, I would say anybody who's considering reading this book, skip past the child portion if you don't have a child, because this is game changing. It made me a better father, a better husband, a better healthcare clinician. I think anybody Same. going through a young, any young person going through a health professions program, like this should be on the reading list. Yeah, because we do, we do it with med students. Yeah, yep. it, it is. Um, I mean, I've recognized now. Now I have the tools in my life to recognize when I'm regulated and dysregulated yeah. because for listeners, Adam did not have a childhood with any regulation. I had no <laughs> emotional teaching. I had parents that were highly dysregulated and As were very do. <laughs> <laughs> we're, oh. we're very much along the lines of if you're crying, you're being dramatic. If you, you know, if you're injured, um, you need to suck it up. So, so I'm learning these tools, Dr. Shanker, when I'm like 35 reading your book. And I have recognized in the past five years now when I treat patients on a daily basis, I have more empathy for them yeah. because I'm coming into the visit understanding that their life just transpired in the hours and days and weeks before in an, in a patient room with myself. And then when they have like very so strong pro-social emotions, it's not affecting me the same because I'm just like giving them the empathy they deserve I, I, of I life occurred to you. I just you know? love it. I love yeah. it. Adam. It's so important. I agree, man. It's I'm using the same stuff with my two year old. I'm able to see it like clockwork. My yeah. six year old as well. He's a tongue sucker and he fidgets <laughs> with his he fidget. He's got like dreadlocks and he fidgets with his dreadlocks whenever he's dealing with a lot of stress. And again, your book is helping give 
uh, vocabulary and framework to this. And um, so, you know, he's six years old. We try to go, oh, go ahead, it's time to go lay down for a nap. So you're old enough, you're big enough to go put yourself down for a nap. But he does it a lot. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to go lay down with him. I start rubbing his back. The, the six-year-old takes the, the, he has this one lock that he normally plays with, the same one. He takes the lock and he tucks it away and then he goes to sleep. Crucial. It's crazy. So yeah. when you say that you don't have to, con- like the convincing doesn't really require a lot. So I, you know, I just want to really pivot a lot of this stuff to, like we're talking about the children. Like I think we, we've done a great job. You've done a great job. Uh, Stuart, of making the case for self-reg as it relates to children and as it relates to people we're serving. But I think you you hinted at this. The primary person that self-reg needs to start with is self. So yeah. for all of our yes. listeners, yes. Uh, this is what I'm going to break down for our listeners is break it down. forget about how you can better serve your athletes with all this information until you serve yourself with this information. Because I'm seeing it happening in my own life as well Step as one. I relate to my exactly. wife, as I relate to my wife and it's helping in our marriage, even as I relate to Adam. Adam and I can have conversations. We're like two geeks and we're texting. I'm like, hey, man, I'm feeling a little dysregulated right now, you know, by, you know, and you're the source of my dysregulation. <laughs> so, That's good. I mean, Such good terminology, as you said, though, having that as vocabulary is yes. like one step in the process. Yes. My ad- admonishment you know, to athletic trainers and other sports medicine professionals is as you hear this stuff, like actually put this stuff in the practice for yourself, like reframe your own. I, there's, we have copious notes of things that we've, we've talked about here, but look, if it, if it matters for that athlete that you want it, then you need to make sure that you take care of yourself first. Exactly. You know? Yep. I got two things to say, Chris. One, the story of your kids going in my next book, yeah wait wait the, what, what did you say i didn't hear you the one with the lock is going in my next book ah uh, beautiful and two you guys don't need me oh well i don't i don't believe that but you're right i, I want to give you another great example dr shaker in my personal life i read your book i think when my oldest who's now four years old was two and a half or three years old and i thought man he's too young to like implement these things, but here we go. Like I'm on board, I'm on the train. You didn't, I didn't need that much convincing. <laughs> when he was three years old, he come, he came to me and he was like, daddy, I don't feel calm in my body. I want to go oh. rest. I was like, yes, we, we've crazy. arrived. We've arrived at the day. And they can you... all do it. Yes. Wow. And they can all do it. So if a three-year-old can do it, a high school kid can do it. If you're working as a secondary high school, a secondary athletic trainer, a college athletic trainer, college students can do it. Professionals can do it. A lot of these adult men and women, they can do it too, you know? Yep. Okay, guys, I got to go do anxiety. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, Dr. Shanker, we are very, very thankful for your time My today. Goodness. We, I think maybe we need to try to schedule a time in the next year to revisit some topics for Please. our listeners. If, if you're available, we will share in our show notes, the Merit Center will share your books. We would love to talk with you in the future about bringing some self-reg curriculum to these schools yeah. in LA Unified for student athletes. Yep. And hey. for athletic trainers. Yep. So Adam, Adam. Tell Heather that Stuart said that we're meeting again in a year. Beautiful. Okay.
Okay, <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you, Stuart. Keep it up, guys. I All love right. it. Appreciate it. At Vantage is the premier provider for non-traditional work, advocacy, and resources while pushing the boundaries of athletic training. Follow them on social media at The At Vantage and join their email list for an even deeper dive into all things non-traditional and access to more boundary-pushing content. The Sister Academy of Advantage, their academy arm, is who brings you great educational content like this podcast. For more resources on professional development, starting a business, or advocacy, head to AdvantageAcademy.com. D and, and Chris, let's let's chop it up a little bit. Recording, uh, I mean, I think we can yep. decompress in sorts, but our listeners can catch some of our decompression of that. Absolutely, of that conversation. Wow, Absolutely. wow! Describe wow, Deanna. I mean, I think the main thing, and I took notes just going over the five categories of stressor, which what it was: physical, emotional, social, cognitive, and then the last one, pain. I think pro, that pro social. Oh, pro social, excuse me. I he talks about self-awareness begins with self, identifying those stressors that may be causing you the inability to self-regulate. That's that was my big takeaway from Dr. Shanker. Yeah, that's a huge takeaway. Understanding that there is more to stress than we typically perceive. Uh, like I think uh, oftentimes we are always focused on the emotional category. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily recognizing that whether we're hot or cold or whether we did not eat or what we ate had too much sugar or where we did not have enough sleep. And then the cognitive aspect and then the social piece, social media is putting strain on us in a big mm-hmm. way. Um, yeah. Recognizing these domains helps you to then deal with some of the stressors. But I would like to add I think we are always way more skewed to the sympathetic nervous system. And so you need some practice of bringing yourself back to parasympathetic tone as a prevention measure, not reactionary. Like date. So a way that I try to do that is exercise, eating well, sleeping well. And I meditate at least twice a day because if I don't, then I'm dysregulated throughout the day. And I've recognized that even 10 minutes of meditation makes me better regulated in like a 16 hour period. Exactly. Even COVID. I mean, we didn't touch on that. And I know you guys mentioned like the reason you even started this podcast was during COVID, but think about the differences of being at home, being in your comfort zone. And for some of us not being at home and then going back in that environment, being dysregulated and having to re-regulate constantly switching environments. I think that's something we're all dealing with even post-COVID. I know it's been two years, but it's still something I know I'm dealing with getting back into the norm, the new normal. Yeah. One of those 600 or so categories of stress that Dr. Shanker alluded to. I want to maybe touch on some other statistics that I think were important to our discussion that we just didn't get deep into because Dr. Shanker was eloquently relaying so much science to us science to us but there are some there are some significant race related stressors that have been documented in the literature in that people of color and black people often have higher rates of psychological distress in comparison to white people and when they have 
reporting of you know levels of psychological well-being like life satisfaction scores happiness black people tend to report lower levels of psychological well-being and so if we really dissect what some of those reasons are discrimination is a huge huge piece of that in our society and this big this stressor huge stressor yes and so even if you look at kind of meta analyses of this literature there's broad agreement that social and contextual factors of exposure to chronic and acute stressors are linked to like where you live and work and they play a pivotal role in shaping your mental health risk and discrimination correlates with all the big healthcare things cancer cardiovascular disease diabetes obesity that we talked about a huge one is cortisol dysregulation discrimination correlates positively with depression anxiety and psychological distress so it's just i think so important that we recognize that our society and some of the structural racism that occurs is causing health problems for people to some extent is causing dysregulation dysregulation and it's causing mental health illnesses and it, that has to be our, some of our context in caring for people i believe it what comes to mind with the statement you just made adam was athletes that first come to college and and like dr shanker said maybe we're never exposed to that what was it? The connection, the person who kind of forms that connection in the brain and that support uh, system. The inner brain or mirror neurons. So my physiology and my emotional state dictates to some extent the emotional state of whoever you're speaking to. That's the inner exactly. brain. Exactly. So just that, that dysregulation that maybe that athlete is going through and how we as athletic trainers or maybe people listening and, and her, hearing this podcast can now be that for someone else, can maybe help someone become self-aware of the different stressors in their life and learn how to self-regulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's there's two modes or models he talked about, which is an athlete is very dysregulated and they come to you. That's not the time to say, well, this is what you need to do with your rehab to get better. Like, Because exactly. that's not going to be an effective strategy. But what you could do is a talk in a soft voice uh, say something very simple like, I'm here for you, I support you, maybe provide them some labeling of some of the emotions that they're having. So maybe this is uh, you have fear because of the jeopardization of your playing career. Maybe you're angry that you were injured right now. Those are just real simple strategies to support them emotionally and get them past this real dysregulated period. And then all the like little small touch pieces, of course, we know boundaries with athletes, but a simple like, you know, soft hand on the shoulder could be very strategic in that dysregulated moment to say, I'm here for you. And like, and silence, I think sometimes is a really difficult part for people when somebody else is dysregulated, but a hand on the shoulder and silence with I'm here for you. And then followed by silence to let them kind of process this and, and not just like, recognizing that we're going to want to be like the problem solver as the healthcare provider, but sometimes like the problem doesn't need to be solved right then. It needs to exactly. be just support in that moment. Exactly. Yeah. Another strategy for the whole hand, the contact we should do, we could do some research on this, but my guess is that most, if not all of our athletes that come to us are in a state of dysregulation, right? 
We yeah. just need to make that clear. We already so know that. We already know of that. that. Well, and I, and but for us to really see it that way now that we have some of this other vocabulary. So so now we know that they're coming to us in a state of dysregulation so that our, our primary objective needs to be to help them to deregulate or or bring them back to a homeostasis. Regulate, but, yeah. But the, but the way we do that is all over the place. So even, you know, even if I know that I'm not going to do a special test on this cat's ankle that he just inverted because it's so swollen and all that stuff, I still can actually put my hand there since that's the point of injury. Yeah, yeah, I got you. I not to you. necessarily do a tailor tilt, but I can still make the skin contact, right? Yep. To know that, oh, okay, to the athlete, he might, he it shows that, oh, okay, he's He's touching me or she's touching me in the area of my injury, but I know that I'm not touching them to try to do a special test. I'm actually trying to calm them down. Right. That's so a, that's a great that strategy. helps with the awkward, you know, so that could, but so, but the other thing I wanted to hit at too, man, is like the way that we've been educated as practitioners and healthcare providers, we are really well-versed and you kind of alluded to this, Adam, we're well-versed in understanding dysregulation. We're, uh, we're, we, we, it's similar to understanding injury and illness. We study health and wellness from an injury standpoint. We study it from a, a, a disease and illness standpoint. We don't study it from a health, from a, from a, a preventative or here's what health, we spend little time, I should say, talking about here's what healthy looks like, right? Here's what healthy yeah. sounds like. Here's what healthy smells like. We, True. We, it's we, our our educators have done a good job. So this is no slight to them, but it's just to help bring some balance. But they've done a good job of showing us how to sniff out when things are wrong. But m- most of us don't know how to know. We don't know when things are right. You know, we don't know, and we don't know how to really like. We don't know it well enough to perpetuate this stuff, right? That's so, such a good point. Mm-hmm. So as we as we are trying to learn, and and when I think about athletic training education programs, for sure, like self reg needs to be on the top of some of these reading lists for a variety of reasons, one for better outcomes for patient care, but also for better outcomes for the practitioners themselves. It's right? so much more important than evaluation of a yes, extremity. Exactly. Because as Dr. Schenker was talking, man, when he was talking about the physiological processes of dopamine and opioids and all these other things that happen naturally, when we are in a place of homeostasis, you're not going to need like some of the, you're not going to need some of the therapeutic modalities that we use externally because your bot, we're helping it internally. Yeah. We help you have less we're, pain. We're helping balance some of these things. Exactly. So yeah. we're helping the body do release the hormones that address nociception and, yep. you know, all of these other things. So the five steps to reframing, you know, when, when he was listing these things, misbehavior versus stress behavior, identifying the stress, reducing the stress, calm the brain and the body, and then restoration recovery. We should learn that right next to the, the clock cascade. Exactly. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Who cares about the clock cascade? Yeah. So it's like it right happens. next. It yeah. happens. People don't bleed to death. Usually use a tourniquet. Right. Like it's that simple actually. So we should, if I, <laughs> yeah. So if somebody comes in with a knee injury, if I understand that, okay, this person isn't coming. Okay. They're, they're screaming and cussing. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the first things that we do is, hey, you need to watch your language in here, yep. right? Yeah. Because we're treating that as misbehavior as opposed to like, oh, let's recognize this person is in stress. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, could say, you could say, I hear you. I, I heard yeah. your, your, your language. You must be really uh, angry right now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And then so help diffusing. them identify that. Right. You know, you don't know. You're confused. You don't know what your future holds. So, yeah, man, fuck. I totally feel you. 
you know, that's so powerful. That is so powerful. Right. And then we kept calm them down, calm their brain and body down and then lead them towards recovery. And then that's where we that's step five is where we actually enter into maybe some of the more technical, technical things that we've learned, you know, from a clinician standpoint. Right. Yeah, let's but evaluate we, your ankle. <laughs> we stop. We start with step. Five. We try to start at the recovery restoration process. And it's mm-hmm. like you're not going to be able to get there because they're so guarded, you know, through steps mm-hmm. one through four. Yeah, man. So, there's so much to unpack here, man. There's there's so much. I and OK, so let's be realistic. The the hill to climb to incorporate self-regulation in curriculum across the masses. It's going to be a big one. Right. But I think at last could partner with the Merit Center. We could take some curriculum. We could write grants, which we're very close to doing. And we could just bring this to people, athletic trainers, athletes, people who need it. Workshops. Yep. Yep. Webinars, all of it. Yep. That for sure needs to be there. And these are the, this is the content that we can release through our social media, Deanna, right? Through graphics, et cetera. I was really encouraged by Stuart because he used the word fresh out the gates that Hawk gave us. Like he used that it's a revolution. And the fact that he affirmed the work that we're doing the way that he did, it, it just, it makes me even more comfortable with just this, this reality that do we, this is the revolution of sports medicine, but even to Stuart's point, Stuart's, saying like we could revolutionize our country the world like that mm. was that Bro. was bananas to me like yeah the, the, that like who would expect for revolutionary change to happen coming from us from the, the field of sports medicine right where we're teaching people how to self-regulate right because we know that that immediately impacts racist ideology which we didn't mm. you know i mean we could dig into that right but that immediately impacts that because if i can regulate myself I'm going to be able to better think about the human, you know, next to me. Mm-hmm. Well, to your <laughs> so. point in Dr. Shanker, recognizing that real recognizes real. Right. Exactly. And then he, the even more superficial correlation of sport and play and recreate, you know, and movement, physical movement being a way for people to self-regulate. Yep. Mm-hmm. For a variety of reasons. So we're at a great intersection. Once again, we find ourselves as athletic trainers in these places where, you know, this is where it's like, man, we don't have to pride ourselves on trying to be the exclusive provider of how to tape an ankle, you know, and think that we're the, we, we, old, we like, we have the patent to doing certain things. Like, let's not die on those heels. There's so many, like, just our position the way that we are placed in the, our intersectionality, athletic trainers have some of the most intersectionality, you know, we're the perfect provider to do everything we just talked about. Correct. Yep. And all the things we talked about in all the prior episodes, yep. you know, like there's so much. So, you know, as we keep these things in mind, like when we're ready to get like guarded for a particular topic or thing, it's just like, yo man, chill, let, let people have that. That's okay. Like, yeah. Don't, what, what people don't have as athletic trainers have is the connectivity to coaches, athletes, et cetera, to where we are the primary care practitioners, right? So who cares if somebody else is taping an ankle? That's fine. We could teach people how to save ankles and do some of these other things that we want to hold so dearly, you know, because there's so much work to be done. The scarcity mindset, as you like yeah. to say. 
Exactly. People have things to teach us as well. I think we have to stop being so closed off. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned this kind of exploring different careers. It's like there, you can learn so much on the other side and, and, oh, and having that, holding that space for other people to teach you something. Like we talked about kids. They teach us a lot about self-regulation. Adam, you sharing your story with your son. Like I need to go take a nap. You know, it's like, wait a minute. You can tell me what you need. I need to be better about that. But he was able to do that because Adam had been practicing it and then giving him those tools. Exactly. And and that's where we as athletic trainers and sports medicine providers, we need to be better. Like our, our, we could argue that our outcomes or the lack thereof is a reflection of the practitioner that we are. Yep. (laughs) Oh, not even arguably. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very close to (laughs) collecting data to like prove that point. Yeah. Yeah, man. So if you're w- complaining about your athletes, you actually need to take a close look in the mirror. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's like one on one. Yeah, man. But the harder thing, the harder thing to do is evaluate yourself and be objective and critical to self. Yeah. And kind. Yeah. But but I'll, but I, I wanted to pull up this spreadsheet real quick because I now have. 458 data points of a validated sleep assessment of athletic trainers and athletic training students. And I haven't, I haven't run the data collection, but last time I did when the numbers were a little bit smaller, greater than 80% of these individuals that took this validated survey did not sleep the recommended seven hours minimum per night that you need for homeostasis, that you need for regulation, that you need for reducing stress. So how are you interacting interpersonally and with athletes when this is one criteria, one huge criteria, I would say, in my my opinion. Yeah. Um, Still one of many. Yes. And so, okay. So, so I surveyed almost 500 athletic trainers and athletic training students. You can extrapolate that to the masses, right? That's a big enough data set to say, okay, this is representative of the 50,000 athletic trainers. Yeah, man. I I think one other key point that you indicated in the notes um, and we maybe skimmed it is this idea of of vigilance, right? I think this is a huge subject. Yeah. Particularly student athletes and other athletes that you might work with of color, black student athletes, Dr. Schenker talked about this elaborately, where they are lit, they're coming from these places and living in these places where they are in a constant state of psychological arousal, just for, to just, just to, to stay live. alive, just yep. to make sure that I can get from school to home safely, just mm-hmm. to make sure that I can address the stress of being hungry so that I can eat, just to you know to to deal with the sleepless nights because. I'm hearing sirens or gunshots or whatever. So, you know, as practitioners, particularly those of us out there who are working with black and other people of color, you need to be aware of these psychological arousals that they come, they start the day with. Yeah. Could, uh, let's say could, because. Or could. Yeah, sure. Because we don't want to assume that because you're a person of color that you come from an environment that. It's that is natural. Right, right, right. We don't want to, I'm not generalizing, but it is a key point 
yeah. that you make. Dr. Ross talked about it in his personal childhood. I forget which episode, but we were clearly talking about mental health at that point that on a daily basis, he was just concerned about like the color of clothes he was wearing in an LA neighborhood and right. getting to the, <laughs> to school. So then how are you performing cognitively in school when like trying to learn? Yeah. Right. Can't even focus. Yeah. Trying to learn mm-hmm. algebra. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, I'm trying to teach me some, some geography dog. I need to learn which alleys and back ways I need to take, you know, and what angles I need to hit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to survive. Honestly. So, I, yeah, man, there's so much. Stuart gave us so much to think about and and literally chew on for a long time and and fuel us until next year, you know, when we'll take him up on the offer to have him back with us in some capacity, whether it's for another episode or have him to be a guest, uh, you know, speaker or, or to run a workshop. Who knows, man? My mind is spinning on a variety of things that we could do, but Ooh, yeah, workshop. I, I'm going to get at Heather, although I don't even know who that is. <laughs> yeah, but figure <laughs> like, it out. Hey. Uh, so we're just grateful for, for Shanker's time. What a high level dude, man. What mm-hmm. a high level dude. Read the book. Uh, read yeah, The book is huge. Read it. Making me want to read the book. I need to you go need get to. it. Self-reg is, is great. It's great. Yeah. Chris, Chris can maybe attest to how much I read, which I think is a large volume. This is one of the best books I've ever read. Like this, top five. And he recommended it to me. I do it digitally and it's, yeah, I've been consuming it. It's, um, he really breaks it down. Yeah. And some of it can be a little laborious, but having that framework was it allowed me to track with him in so many levels. You know, I mean, even I was like, I was talking to my wife today about how she was talking to our kid, how I often talk to our kid. But now that I've learned this stuff, I'm like, ah, oh, hey, babe. So look, <laughs> even though you're, you might try to change your tone, there are other things about how our body language is. So the bottom line is our kids can sense when we're dysregulated. That's the, that's the moral of the story. So whether it's yep. not just your kids, your athletes will sense when you're dysregulated, your significant other is going to sense when you're dysregulated. So it it is worth it to regulate yourself. What you right? say doesn't even matter. It doesn't, nope. you know, or how you say it, because I can whisper and my kid <laughs> will still have the fear of God on his face if he notices that I'm dysregulated. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, read the book and just keep getting better. <laughs>